you mentioned it. Can we build new airports? I mean, <laughs> that's it's a big question. And the answer appears to be, no, we can't. But I, I feel like people have a better sense of what Delta is about these days than they used to. I think the perception of Delta as a brand has improved. I think that it gets high marks from our readers, certainly. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes successful analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwarzman. Today we have a special guest. Paul Brady is the articles editor at Condé Nast Traveler. He's a longtime observer of the travel industry from the consumer perspective, and full disclosure, he's a longtime friend of mine. We got started working together at a hotel review startup, but that's another story altogether. Today, we're here to talk about follow-up of our recent coverage of Delta Airlines and its strategic move. So welcome, Paul Brady. Thanks, guys. Glad to be on. So, Paul, we, we did a recent podcast on Delta and some of its strategic moves. Airlines have been doing pretty well as an industry, and so we thought we'd dig a little bit deeper to see what's going on from somebody who knows the business a little better. We spoke about Delta's Focus City approach as a potential differentiator for the company. And the idea of the Focus City is that they're building out their number of flights from secondary bases such as Boston and Cincinnati and Raleigh-Durham, rather than just relying on everything going through the hub and spoke model that most airlines have relied on in the past. Why don't we just start there? What's your view as far as what's Delta, what Delta is doing here and how that compares to other industry or other airlines in the industry. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Delta has become not exactly quietly, but over the past, you know, few years, decades, one of the world's largest airlines. And, and one of the ways they've done that is by operating all of these sort of Focus cities. So I think everybody or anybody who flies a lot knows Atlanta is this sort of major hub for Delta. But as you mentioned, they've, they've started with these focus cities as well. And I think what they're trying to do is give consumers options, right? And flyers in general are, are buying based on two major sort of metrics. One is price, obviously, you know, everybody wants a good deal on airfare, but the other is schedule. And so one of the things I see is Delta trying to give not just business travelers, but all people, better options in terms of when they can go and, and where they can go. So if you can get to any given place on the globe, and I think Delta now is over 5,000 flights a day, which is sort of insane amounts of scale, flyers are going to want to choose Delta if Delta can make that trip easy and as seamless as possible. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more. I think everyone understands price, Paul, but the scheduling flexibility and having more options, that's more like having more times a day that you could fly out of a given city or how does that work in terms of airlines competing with each other on this notion of scheduling? Yeah, for sure. It's not just sort of number of flights, but also, yeah, time of day and, and convenience in terms of departure times, but also syncing up with the rest of your network. I mean, I think anybody who's shopped for a flight knows, you know, that dreaded kind of, oh, it's a 16-hour layover in some place overnight, or, you know, you've got to take either the 6 a.m. flight or the 11 p.m. flight, and there's nothing in the middle of the day. And part of that stems from a lot of airports, particularly in the, in the United States, 
are capacity constrained. You know, they're at their limit of the amount of takeoffs and landings that they're even able to operate safely. And so these, what they call takeoff and landing slots, become a valuable commodity on their own that airlines fiercely guard and will sort of do horse trading with as well. You, you look at Newark International, there was big sort of shakeout recently with airlines trading the amount of, you know, takeoff and landing rights that they have there. And it's one of these things that I think that the casual traveler or even the business traveler isn't necessarily aware of, but there's a lot of behind the scenes maneuvering and bidding that goes on to lock in those times. And that's because, particularly if you're a business traveler that needs to get somewhere, you want the choice of the 6 a.m. flight, the 7 a.m. flight, the 8 a.m. flight, and the 4 p.m. flight, not just some, you know, off hours trips that are going to be both inconvenient, you know, to you on a personal level, but also not get you where you need to be for that meeting, that sales call, whatever it is. So schedule is definitely something important, particularly for the high spending business traveler. Huh. Interesting, I think, just, you know, from the investor's standpoint, it sounds like what you're describing is a pretty severe supply constraint and also activity and among the different competing airlines operating within that sort of constrained supply environment. What what are sort of the barriers to additional capacity coming online, either maybe building more airports or expanding airports? Can you give us a little bit more of a sense of how severe the capacity constraints are for these airlines? How many flights can take off or land in a given day? I'd have to say that they're quite severe. I mean, you mentioned it. Can we build new airports? I mean, <laughs> that's it's a big question. And the answer appears to be, no, we can't. If you look at the infrastructure plan, for example, that the Trump administration rolled out a few months back, the word airport appears only a handful of times. There's a lot of focus on roads. There's a lot of focus on bridges. There's some focus on waterways all of which are also important, don't get me wrong, but there's very little focus on what we can do in terms of airports. And when you think about the number that was bandied about on that plan, $200 billion, we're spending in in New York, where I live, we're spending $6 billion on the rebuild of LaGuardia, which is somewhere, you know, in the 20th busiest airport in the country. And so if that one rebuild, which won't add a lot more in terms of runway capacity, won't add any more runway capacity, Will add a limited amount of capacity in terms of gates, well, that's going to cost you $6 billion. So multiply that times how many new airports we need, and you're looking at the scale of the problem. So, you know, makes building the aircraft themselves is actually a pretty easy fix, and Boeing and Airbus are, are churning out planes. So comparatively, you know, a lot of the constraint is just on the airports themselves, and, and the both just the scale of the infrastructure challenge and the political headaches of trying to build a new airport it's a challenge. So you can add more seats per plane. Yeah, that's the other thing. Airlines are trying to what they call densify, so make more dense their aircraft by adding seats, adding adding just a larger number of seats by shrinking the sort of depth of each seat. So they're doing that. They're putting planes with more capacity on routes that used to have smaller capacity planes on them. But those are sort of, I think, smaller fixes. And and the one other way to look at this sort of 
state of demand is just by what they call load factor, the, the percentage of seats that are sold. And in 2017, we saw worldwide the highest ever load factors, over 80%. And so the demand is certainly there, and the supply in terms of capacity is seems limited based on you know sort of just the data that the airlines are giving us. Well, that's interesting. I'll just put a cap on kind of my line of questioning and then kick it over to Daniel. And I just... I think what we're getting at here is kind of that there are barriers to entry for new airlines, and there's also barriers to bringing more supply online in terms of uh, scheduling ability. I guess that couples in kind of an interesting way with the cyclicality of the business. You mentioned that planes are relatively full. Whether that's a sustainable condition or not is maybe another question. But anyway, Daniel, that's something you wanted to uh, bring up with Paul. Well, it just sounds like I can see why that would be frustrating for travelers, why that would be frustrating for anybody who would benefit from expanding. We don't have privately owned airports in the U.S., but in theory, there's a business opportunity, whoever would own that. But from the airline, it seems like that's a very good problem to have on a very, I'm making the superficial argument. And so I'm just curious how you sort of think about where is the if if you're talking to Delta or American Airlines or whoever else, where are the where do the problems start to come in from having such high load factors, from having such cap capacity constraints? What are sort of the the risks that play out there? And and then I guess maybe is that why something like a focus city strategy is so important? I think the biggest risk on super high load factors is first of all, if you try to push up the price, are you going to scare people away and, and send them to your competition, right? So that's a big that's a big challenge for them. How do you raise your prices without losing your customer? But then along with that is, is the service delivery. You know, it's going to be easier, speaking generally, it's going to be easier to deliver high-quality service to a plane that's 70% full than it is to deliver that on a plane that's 85% full, right? I mean, just kind of you think about serving all those guests and delivering a great experience. And that, I think, is the broader point. You know, we had sort of pre-regulation in the aviation industry. Everybody competed on the sort of amenities and the service, and that's when you saw these sort of like vintage Mad Men era ads about, you know, we're going to sell you roast beef, and we have the best bar, and we have the best plane, and all Mm-hmm. And then we entered this period where all the competition was basically on price, and you had a commoditized product that was a safe flight from this city to that city. And, and basically, the only competition was happening uh, on the price of the ticket. And, and now I see us re-entering this era of trying to differentiate the brands and the product. Delta is doing a lot, I think, in terms of their marketing, as, as well as the actual product that they're delivering to differentiate it from what you get on United, what you get on American, certainly what you get on, on low-cost carriers like Spirit or Frontier. And I think that that's engaging some customers, and there might be a little bit more flexibility today than there was, say, five or ten years ago in the consumer's mind to say, you know what, I like that onboard experience. I like the quality of their you know, lounges, of their food, of the, the Wi-Fi always works, whatever it is that appeals to certain consumer. I think you're starting to see people say, I'm going to pay a little bit extra for that to have that consistent experience. And so the challenge for Delta there is making sure that they deliver that consistency on every trip, on every aircraft times, you know, 5,000 plus flights a day, which is no, no small feat. Well, does that also, uh, that challenge amplify from the fact that even Delta is offering basic economy fares for 
transatlantic flights, I presume for other international flights in, in the U.S., a lot of the airlines, so, so not only do they have to deliver, like, do you view that as, how does that sort of increase of the fare classes play in, where you have anything ranging from basic economy all the way to business class, first class, whatever else? How does that, is that, like, do you view that as inevitable? Is that a smart play because it offers more options or is it more challenging because now you're trying to deliver successful experiences to different price points and what does that mean? Like, how is that playing out from what you see? Uh, It does seem a bit inevitable because there is always going to be this pool or there seems like there's always this pool of travelers who just want the lowest price. And the flip side of that is that the airlines see a good opportunity there to, to generate what they call ancillary revenues from those passengers. So they sort of lure people in with a very low base fare, this, this basic economy fare, uh, and then they can upsell right along the way. Oh, you know what? Actually, I do want to check a bag for $25. Or, oh, I, I do want to make sure that I'm sitting next to the person I'm traveling with. So we'll pay, you know, $19 for a seat assignment. And, and oh, yeah, we don't have, you know, pre-check for security, but we don't want to stand in a long line. So we'll pay $9 for the priority pass. And all these sort of add-ons are great, real ancillary revenue for Delta. And, and that's why you see all the airlines doing that. You think about the fact that they're earning literally billions of dollars in bag fees annually. Uh, I mean, it's a no-brainer. You know, passengers hate them, but if we keep paying them and the airlines keep raking in this money, you know, they're probably not going to stop, right? So um, I think one of the challenges that, that Delta and all airlines have is communicating this information to their passengers, right? Like, what do you get with this fare class? What do you get with that fare class? You know, they've tried to position it as we're giving people options, we're giving people choices, and it's an a la carte model. Uh, for me, I don't know that that message is really like coming through. It, it seems more like they're nickel and diming, like, which is the other way of saying a la carte. But I think, you know, over time, people are going to get used to it and, and people are going to understand that if you pay for this kind of fare, you get this sort of thing and you pay a little more, you're going to get a little more. I mean, that idea, I think, makes a lot of sense. It's just more of a messaging struggle at this point. Let's talk a little bit quickly about some of these specifics, because I think you have a good handle on that, Paul. Just to break it out, what specifically is Delta doing to differentiate itself? I think one of the big things that they're doing uh, is rebranding their business class. And so they've sort of merged the old school idea of first class and the idea that I think that we all have a business class, you know, those big loungy seats up at the front of the plane into something that they've branded Delta One, which is lay flat seats, really elevated food and beverage on board, great entertainment options. There's Wi-Fi, there's sort of preferential treatment. And that's something I think that's really appealing to a lot of travelers, first of all, and then profitable on the sort of long-haul routes that they're putting it on. So they have it on these transatlantic flights as well as flights, you know, between the coast, JFK to SFO, for example. And I think people on a, on a long-haul flight over six hours are definitely willing to pay the premium for a premium experience, or they're willing to have their company pay for it, <laughs> which is part of the reason Delta's positioned it that way. And so I think that's one really nice, great product that they've rolled out. They're also uh, one of the first airlines to operate the Airbus A350, which is a, a cutting-edge airplane with huge windows, better cabin air, these sort of LED lighting systems that, that, they, that Airbus says can actually fight jet lag. 
is the plane that competes with the Boeing 787, another really technologically advanced aircraft. So those are very nice planes just in terms of the onboard experience. Delta gives its customers free texting on board. There's great Wi-Fi service from GoGo, or it's supposed to be great. It's usually great. All of these things are, I think, you know, positive differentiators for them. And then they keep getting high marks for their frequent flyer program, SkyMiles, which is, I think there are some credit card nerds out there who say that it's not as good in terms of what you can redeem it for. But, you know, for the everyday traveler, somebody who books four, six, eight Delta flights a year. There's a lot of value there in terms of, of the reward program, which is something that a lot of flyers care about too. So they've been offering a lot of great products and, and differentiated products that I think are, are paying dividends for them in terms of consumer sentiment. Uh, okay. I'm not sure. It seems like if you unbundle and package everything and price each individual thing, it seems like a really tough thing to straddle in terms of segmenting your product so much and then also creating a sort of holistic brand identity and brand experience. But anyway, let's talk a little bit about execution. First of all, on focus cities. So is that really a unique thing? And then overall, what's your assessment of just how well run a company Delta is? You know, I think on focus cities, you do see some other airlines adopting a, a similar strategy, right? I mean, JetBlue has its base in New York City at, at JFK. They've got a lot of flights in San Juan. They've, they've done over the past few years a, a huge sort of push into the Caribbean and Latin America. They're flying, you know, into South America now. And then I think United still has a, a bit of a hold on the sort of Asian market, uh, you know, long-haul flights to Japan and, and other Asian destinations, particularly from the West Coast. So, you know, I think there's some competition in terms of that, whether you call it hub and spoke or this evolution into focus cities. You know, I wouldn't say that Delta is completely unique on that, but they've got a lot of people to fly, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people to fly you got to have a lot of destinations to, to serve. And what was the other part? How well is Delta doing as a management team? What's your perception on that level? I mean, I, I can't speak to their financials and, and, and that sort of performance, but I, I feel like people have a better sense of what Delta is about these days than they used to. I think the perception of Delta as a brand has improved. I think that it gets high marks from our readers, certainly, and that the onboard experience is, is improved. I mean, really, it's kind of both incredibly difficult and incredibly simple to run an airline, right? Incredibly difficult for all the obvious reasons, but incredibly simple. Like, all you really need to do is operate the planes on time, have, you know, power plugs on board for people's devices, and if you put a TV there with some first-run movies, well, most people are going to be pretty happy with that, <laughs> so as long as you're getting to where they need to go on time. So, and I think they're delivering a lot on that. You know, big thing for the for the executive team right now is is operational performance, on time performance, reducing cancellations, that sort of thing. And I, and I think they're doing a great job on that front. Do you notice any difference? Maybe this is not an important thing to touch on, but Richard Anderson stepped out a couple years ago. Ed Bastian is now the CEO. Like, was there any? Does that come across that change in management and that sort of? Is there anything? Has it Bastion stepped into that role? Does that does that come across in the industry, or is it just sort of the management team is kind of anonymous? Yeah, I, I think for us and like for our readers, it's it's a little bit sort of 
less important than the onboard experience, but you know, I'm certainly sure that the that the management team is is making sure that they're delivering on those promises, right? Like for for our readers, it's all about you know what what is the experience that I'm going to have on board and, and how good is it going to be? You know, am I going to get the value for my money? And I think for the most part, they're delivering on that. So high marks, I would say, on on that front. I brought that up because I feel like Richard Anderson was much more liberal about being made fun of in those in their safety videos. And Ed Bastian <laughs> seems to have clamped down a little bit. So <laughs> that's just my layman's observation of the management team's. Style. Yeah, I feel like many travelers, you know, the, the, the most time they spend with the CEO is, is reading, you know, the letter in the in-flight magazine, which is a nice touch. But I, you know, I think that's kind of the closest most flyers feel, uh, you know, the top of the management chain. Right. If they made an in-flight movie of just the CEO and <laughs> r- ridiculous scenarios and it's like a, a full feature length film of the airline CEO just doing increasingly ridiculous things, I think I would probably fly that airline probably just <laughs> So let's let's zoom out as we kind of circle around for uh, the final approach. The question I think that a lot of investors want to get a grip on is where we are in the in the cycle potentially from a sort of macro perspective, at least in the past 12 months, we've had a really sort of favorable environment for airlines, both on the cost side in terms of fuel prices being relatively low, and then also on the demand side, you know, we're near full employment in the U.S. Things seem to be going well. So do you have a sense, Paul, of sort of where, what the industry vibes are right now? And, you know, what, what kind of insight can you give in terms of, you know, the economic cycle for the airline industry? It feels to me, you know, cautiously optimistic. Uh, you know, you look at all of this sort of data about travel more generally, to your point, stepping back just from Delta, but, you know, airlines are flying more people just in sheer numbers than ever before. The load factors are up. Just, you know, the travel industry more broadly, we're at record highs, more than a billion people taking some kind of trip last year worldwide. Delta's flying, you know, 150 million something people a year. Hartsville, Jackson, their hub in Atlanta. This is not just Delta people, but over a million passengers, 88 million people going to Dubai, 78 million people flying through Heathrow. Yeah, I mean, travel is up. It's It seems to be in some ways impervious to a lot of these shocks, a lot of this sort of scares in the, uh, due to terrorism, due to global unrest. It just seems to be going up, up, up. And I think that people are excited. People in the industry are excited about that, certainly. But they're also wondering, you know, when will this stop and what will it take to sort of slow growth? And and I don't know that anybody really has a great answer for that. You know, it seems like every time something happens that you think, well, this might actually dent growth and slow things down, it, it doesn't really have that effect. In, in that sense, people are very sort of satisfied in the travel industry, but there is, I think, this little bit of tickle in the back of their mind of, oh, no, what's it going to be? And and the answer there hasn't really become clear yet. What's the sense of what's driving that? Maybe in Maybe to get through to the other side of what could stop it. Like, why is it just 
you know, Chinese middle class, or I guess that's more international, but like what is driving the sort of boom of travel from what industry people are saying or what your readers are saying or what you see? I think it's just been uh, certainly the Chinese middle class, you know, BRIC countries, all of these sort of demographic trends are, are driving it as well. The cruise industry is on the rise. You know, they've gone uh, in the last few years from maybe 10 or 15 million passengers to close to 25 million passengers. So that's helping the growth in cruise. But also, I think it's just a mentality shift. You know, travel used to be this thing that you had to endure or you had to go on a business trip or you we're lucky enough to go on a family vacation once a year. And it has become a part of so many people's lives that, you know, we now have this horrible term in the industry, which is leisure, the blending of the business traveler and the leisure travel <laughs> trip, right? And, uh, you know, say what you will about that sort of portmanteau, but it's, I think, something that everybody is doing. You're tacking on a couple of days to your business trip, or you're figuring out a way that you can do a little bit of work while you also see a friend, or you're going to that destination wedding or you're taking a business trip that then turns into a vacation. I mean, travel has become a central part of so many people's identity that we can't stop. And it's something that people are spending money on. And then, you know, you can bring in this dreaded sort of class of millennials, right, which are defined by the fact that they spend money on experiences rather than things. And Yes, that might be because they're burdened with student debt load and they can't find a, a job that pays as much as they'd like. But they're spending their money on a trip instead of a car. They're spending their money on a vacation instead of a down payment. I mean, that all is driving this growth. And then finally, I think for us, you know, we see people just being a bit more brave. This idea that if there's an attack somewhere, that doesn't mean stop going. If there's, you know, a whiff of danger somewhere, it doesn't mean that it's going to be dangerous for you and your trip. I mean, we got stats here in the office just the other day that Mexico had one of the best first quarters in history. And I don't think that that would be obvious to a lot of people based on the headlines that we see out of Mexico, but travel is on the up and people still want to make it part of their lives despite sort of all that's going on. And, and yeah, it's, partly because they have the money to spend on it, too, because of this, uh, I think, sustained economic cycle that we're in. Awesome. Some cyclical Does that driver. answer the question? <laughs> I, I, well, I could have done without millennials and leisure. I had not heard of leisure. Uh, sounds like, I don't know, bleed, like bleeding and seizures. That, that's the format for me. But no, I think that's good. I'd, my... My gut reaction is to see, you know, oil now rising from from lows and rising relatively quickly and just a general good vibe. The sort of bearish person in me sees this airline success of late as, as something that's unsustainable. But I think, you know, China and generational shifts, you're pointing to some real seemingly secular changes in the market that could keep keep things going. I, I'm buying what you're selling, Brady, even though your <laughs> jargon is terrible. The problem, with, the problem with the word leisure is that, you know, we've been hearing it in the industry for a while now, and I think it's universally hated, and yet nobody can come up with a better word to replace it, and so we end up having to go back to it. But I, I, ha I do believe it's identified this real trend and this real change in, in consumer behavior. I mean, it was always like, 
go on your business trip, turn around and get home, and then go on your vacation. And, uh, you know, at least in our office and, and some of my friends that, you know, that don't work in the industry, that's how everybody travels these days is why not piggyback your vacation on the on the plane ticket that your company is paying for anyway, you know, as long as that's in company policy, right? <laughs> Yeah, I like that. Yeah, the one other industry thing that occurred for the airline specifically that's just interesting to me is the point you made about airlines cautious about raising prices. There's supply constraints, there's booming demand, and it's barriers of entry. And so it's really, I guess that would be from a consumer perspective, even more than a investing perspective, like when does pricing power come into play and how does that affect the market is is sort of it's interesting to me that they haven't been able to you think i think the anecdotal of what you see online is kind of tough to pull together but it's interesting that we haven't seen prices go up and as oil goes up that might be a thing to watch out for is that something that you see or that people talk about at all yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the rise in oil price, I think, would, would certainly drive fares up because that's something that's going to hit all of the airlines, right? And and that could certainly be something that presents some upward pressure on pricing. But, you know, we went through a, a whole wave of consolidation a few years back, and there was a lot of concern at the time about, you know, if we go down in the number of airlines serving the United States, is that going to make prices go through the roof? And and it seems like we have just enough competition to keep prices low. Because certainly, American, Delta, and and United are far and away the largest three airlines in in, in the country, or you know operating in the U.S. But with JetBlue and Spirit and Frontier and Allegiant and all these sort of at Southwest, I should obviously mention Southwest a huge factor. There's sort of just enough competition to keep everybody sort of you know on edge about trying to raise prices too much. And it does seem, even though we talk about all these sort of amenities that Delta has added and, and other airlines too, of course, you know, I mean, JetBlue is all about this sort of passenger experience. Alaska acquiring Virgin America, that's a big, I think, sign that onboard experience and in-flight experience is valuable. But there's enough competition out there to keep everybody sort of honest in a way uh, on the pricing. And uh, certainly they wish they could raise their prices, but, you know, at, at what cost in terms of you know, loss of, of consumer interest? Uh, I don't know. That's fascinating. I think we had generally just assumed that there was more pricing power than what you're describing. Well, Daniel, do you have any final thoughts or questions? I thought that this was a really interesting conversation. I'm kind of tapped out for questions. Yeah, I... I... I feel like I could. I love the topic and I love hearing what you have to say, Paul. But yeah, I think I think as far as our listeners go, I think that's a pretty good recap. So thanks so much for, for joining us on this. Glad to be here. I love talking airlines. <laughs> All right, Paul. Take care, man. Thanks, guys. Thank, thank you, Paul. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any investors in mind you'd love to hear joined behind the idea, please let us know. You can tweet us at Daniels Seeking A or at M. Brooks Taylor. Please leave a review on iTunes if you have the chance, as that will help us improve this podcast. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Idea.